Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. (laughs) Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to the Team House. This is episode 183. I'm Jack Murphy here with David Park. This is our special Christmas edition that's pre-recorded. Going out to you guys. Hope you're having a Merry Christmas back home. Uh, and I know we have some holiday confusion on this show because we had another Christmas episode that ended up going out on Thanksgiving. <laughs> but this one's for real. This time it's really Christmas. Um, <laughs> we're here with our guest today, Shawnee Delaney. Uh, she served in the DIA. Uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, multiple tours overseas to Iraq, Afghanistan, other places around the world, working uh, strategic intelligence in Latin America, Asia, Africa. Um, Really, you're the first DIA officer we've had, kind of boots-on-the-ground experience. So really excited to talk to you, Shawnee, and thank you again uh, so much for coming on the show today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. This This is a great show. I love it. Big fan. And to to not to put you on the spot, but I will anyway. Uh, the great the, the great Jim Waller uh, suggested you to me. He said you got to have Shawnee on the show. She's one of the best students I've ever had, um, and I, he, I I think that means a lot coming from somebody like that. Yeah, he's amazing. I tell everyone Jim Waller is a national treasure. Um, <laughs> if it, anyone's ever read his books, they're phenomenal. I do have to put a plug in that he has named a character and created a character after me for, for his third book. So I'm super, super excited to <laughs> see that. Yeah, he's a super cool guy. So, Shawnee, let's jump into it. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of like how you grew up and what was that pathway like for you that took you towards governmental service eventually in the in the Defense Intelligence Agency? Yeah, so I am one of those super weird kids, I think. Um, My parents were big hippies, uh, very polar opposite from going into federal government or military. And I've told this story before, so apologies if anyone's ever heard of it. But um, when the Marine barracks were bombed in Beirut, Lebanon, I was I was young, mm-hmm. and um, I my dad used to watch the you know the nightly news with Dan Rather, and I as a little girl like. I uh, really liked Dan Rather and his deep voice. And there was something about the attention my father paid to that news story and the tone that Dan Rather, like how it changed and the images and it just, something clicked. And I I wondered, I remember watching the show and I remember wondering why would somebody do that? Like, that's bad. You know, my little kid brain, that's bad. And so as I got older, I just became more and more interested in counterterrorism and the you know psychological motivations of why people, you know, when they strongly, strongly believe in whatever it is they believe, why do they take it to those steps? And then when I discovered in intelligence, and I don't know how young I was, that was like, you know, I heard angels singing. That is what I was meant to do. And so I was just a total geek and doggedly pursued it. Um, I think I applied to the CIA when I was like 19. 
um, and made it through several interviews. And I just kept applying different places until I finally did it. I did um, ultimately sign up to take the ASVAB. I had decided, okay, I could do like Air Force. You know, that sounds Mm -hmm. easier. (laughs) And then um, I think the night before the ASVAB, I was like, no, no, no. Like, what if I take, I'm a horrible test taker. What if I get something I don't like? I don't have control and a little type A, I need control. So um, I went and got a master's degree in counterterrorism, counterproliferation. And I went and studied Arabic and I lived in Egypt and just kind of everything I did, I did it with, with that goal of being marketable to get that job in Intel. That's amazing. That's really interesting because a lot of people like stumble into those fields, you know, uh, kind of randomly sometimes. Um, yeah. But you really went after it with intent. It's all I wanted. It's all I wanted. And so one of those applications got accepted at DIA. And what, what, I mean, could you walk us through kind of what that process was? I think people are always interested, like how that recruitment process works and the training process. Yeah, well, I think if you're interested in getting into intelligence, you've got to be aggressive. Um, You know, they want you to apply online and you and 5 million other people are doing that and you go into this black hole. Um, So I did that. Uh, I I attended all the recruiting sessions in in college, um, in grad school. I would go talk to the recruiters. Like I said, I applied to CIA when I was 19. I got selected or no, that first time I didn't get selected. I made it through a bunch of interviews. And I remember, I think it was the third interview. uh, The guy's like, wait, how old are you again? And I was like, ooh. 19. Uh, he's like, can you call us in a few years? Um, I, slipped, I slipped through there. Um, but but each time I got farther and farther along. And then I did get a, a job offer with agency with CIA. They uh, I remember the recruiter told me to like, go buy a car. It, it's I was from California, like it's snowy in DC, you're gonna need a car. Uh, so I did that in about two weeks before this is like one of my biggest failures in life, even though I didn't fail. Uh, they called, you know, this is Mary, you know, she didn't say who she was with, but like the, the billet's been decremented. We got rid of the billet and I was devastated. Like I was this close to achieving my dream. So I remember actually being in the waiting room of one of the like interview cycles. I think it was the psychological assessment. And there was another redhead um, named Sarah. And we were talking and I remember Sarah saying, if I don't get this job with agency, I'm going to apply with DIA because it's the same thing. It's the same training. And no one's ever heard of them. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to try that. <laughs> so um, so I did. And I, by chance, there was a recruiter that came out to my graduate school. And there was a recruiter. And then there was a woman that was an alum who happened to be like number three at DIA. She's amazing. Sharon Hoy. Love her, love her, love her. And I listened to the pitch. And I walked up to Sharon and this recruiter named Craig. And I said, hey, DIA needs me. And here's why. And both of them looked at me, A, like I was nuts. But then you saw this like, huh, all right. And I remember Craig said, let's go get a beer. And so I basically went and recruited him over a beer and was able to get in. Uh, it took, you know, a year plus, but I was able to finally get in. And what was the job that you actually applied for and, and, and got hired for? Case officer. Mm-hmm. I was like, human all the way. And they're like, well, you know, there's these others. And I was like, human all the way. <laughs> So uh, maybe at this point, it's a, it's a good moment for a, uh, a tactical pause, if you will, um, to talk about what is the DIA? Because as you, you mentioned, even in the recruitment process, a lot of people don't know what the DIA is, don't know what you guys do, aren't familiar with the, the career field. Um, could you kind of like give us the, 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 I guess, the DIA pitch, if you will? Yeah, well, I'll give you one sentence. I mean, the, the, the cool thing about the DIA is we support the warfighter, mm-hmm. period, right? So with DIA, when I had first started, everything was very tactical. You know, I had um, multiple war zone tours and initially those were very tactical. We were in that phase of the war in Iraq, for example, where we needed to find the IEDs and we needed to stop our people from getting blown up. That was a very cool mission. But then when politics started getting involved and there were elections coming up, we ended up moving into strategic. So the cool thing about DIA is while you think it would be purely military and tactical, we touched everything. Mm -hmm. Also kind of different than CIA, where usually as an officer, you're put in like a commercial cover or an official cover. At DIA, and maybe it's because we kind of march to our own beat every now and then, 
We would dabble in both. So as an officer, I could, depending on the target that I was going after, I could pick, okay, I'm going to be commercial for this one. I'm going to be official for this one. So it was great because my experience was global. I wasn't pigeonholed in one region. And I was able to kind of dabble in, you know, fake private sector and creating my own horrible website and um, all, all these different things. So it was really cool. And and then I'll say also in deployment, we we joke, people have probably heard me say this, but that, you know, we, we call it lovingly the discount intelligence agency because we did not have the resources. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have the personnel. We didn't have the support right. that CIA had um, on the ground. So we had to make do with a lot of nothing. Yeah. I mean, the, you say discount intel, and I, I was thinking the DI is kind of like the redheaded stepchild, right, of, <laughs> of, of the intelligence community that few people know what they do, but what they do, they do very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's because officers are forced to think outside the box mm -hmm. when you don't have resources, but you still have a mission and you're trying to save lives. You are going to wake up early and you're going to figure out how to get it done. And mm -hmm. that I loved, loved that about that job. Did you also find or feel that the DIA, because it was driven by the military and by the military mindset, that it was less risk adverse a lot of times than than like maybe the agency was? Yeah, I think with any organization, it's leadership dependent, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as a whole, yes. I mean, for example, with CIA, so I was in Mosul, Iraq, which, you know, was a garden spot. It was gorgeous. Right. Uh, uh, we would rely on thin-skinned vehicles that were acquired uh, from raids and stuff like that from other military units. So while I would be mission commander and I would create, you know, my op ward and I would run this mission and go outside the wire and pick up my own assets and sources, the CIA, bless them, had, you know, up armored G wagons, you know, mm -hmm. Mercedes G wagons, and they had their uh, GRS guys, you know, the big, everyone walk around with no shirt on, and everyone was handsome. They would go out and get the source and bring it back to the case officer. So, I mean, we got scrounged. We were down and dirty. Like we did the work, mm -hmm. which again, I think was pretty special. I, I definitely want to get into all of that, but um, before let's, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about like what the training pipeline was like for you as a DIA human to um, and what that entailed. Yeah. So, um, there were several courses that we had to take, you know, joining a military organization, obviously you had to be familiar with the military. So there were like basic one-on-one courses where you learned ranks, um, things like that. And then it kind of progressed. So there was something called DISDIC, Defense Strategic Debriefers course down at Fort Huachuca, um, where you're learning strategic debriefing. Because one of the things that DIA does is defense or strategic debriefing, where I could say, hey, my name is Shawnee Delaney. I'm with the Department of Defense. I see you just went to China. Could, you, could I ask you some questions? So it's overt. Um, there are a lot of people that go into that pipeline, but that was kind of like a foundation. Mm -hmm. So then you could choose, do you want to go interrogation? Do you want to go clan? And so I obviously I went clandestine. So we had other courses. One was called, um, oh gosh, what was it called? Um, I totally slipped, AMSOC. And I don't remember even what that stands for. Um, but we had that course, which was, I don't even know how many weeks, six weeks, 10 weeks. I mean, it was, it was a solid course where it's like um, case officer light, like, um, we had the authorities where if you went through that training, you could actually recruit someone in a war zone if a case officer was with you. So you'd get credit, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, but that basically was a force multiplier and giving us more clandestine officers light, right, in, in these war zones because we just had so many people going out constantly. Then there was a pre-course, and the pre-course was a course that people took um, before they went to the farm. Everybody's heard of the farm, right? Um so that pre-course, actually, I did not take. I had it waived. Um, I guess that was pretty good. Right. right. But, <laughs> uh, so I didn't have to take that. And then I went straight into the farm, which was some of my most favorite memories in the history of my life. I Again, it was the nerd, right? People would go every weekend. They'd come home to D.C. or, like, have a life. And I was the only student that stayed every weekend and cased and drove around. And I was just, like eating every second up. I loved it so much. 
Yeah, this was like literally your like kind of childhood dream coming true, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, here, if you see over my shoulder, where is it? That coin, that frame right there was given to me when I graduated from the farm. Um, I saved the suit that I wore uh, the day I graduated. I put a little note in the pocket for my kids. You know, if I die one day, like, mom, I graduated from the farm in this suit, you know, like, <laughs> it, it just, it was everything to me. And I mean, now you're learning about, you know, source handling and surveillance detection routes and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, what, what did now, now that you're kind of in it, I mean, what, what's your impressions of it? What's your thoughts about, about the, you know, world of human? Uh, I loved it. I hated, hated the politics. Uh, I hated feeling like I had to pick sides or like be in a game somehow to get a good uh, assignment or things like that. Um, but I am the kind of person where I just, I go under the radar and I just want to do my job. Mm -hmm. um, but I ate, slept and breathed it. Like, you know, there were times I was stationed in Germany for a while. There were months where I'd be home one day a month because I just wanted to be out. Yeah. You know, were you able to, um, kind of direct, like self-direct in that way? Like, were there opportunities that if you just jumped on them, you could always kind of get out, get out the wire. And I know in Germany, but get out the gate and like, go do your thing. Yeah, I would say that I had a lot of control over my career, um, which I didn't think I would. Uh, but again, it's being a self-advocate. I mean, you got to talk, the, you know, you talk, talk, you got to walk the walk. You've got to be good. If you're not good, you're not going to get anything. Right. Um, but I was constantly fighting. So like I wanted to go to Pakistan. I wanted to go, you know, we have uh, defense liaison officers and different um you know, embassies around the world. And I was constantly talking to my bosses, whoever that was like, this is where I want to go. What can I do? How can I, you know, so I was just, I, I wouldn't take no for an answer. And I think that's one of the the secrets at DIA. Uh, and uh, then what year did you graduate from and finish all of your training to go operational? Uh, 2008. Uh, but weren't you sent over to Iraq in 06? Mm -hmm. Yep. So I was there 06, 07 and 09. So 06, 07, I was um, AMSOC trained. So okay. I was the case officer light. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Okay. So yep. let's, let's uh, start getting into that. Well, let's tell us about that first deployment arriving in Iraq. I mean, 06, 07. I mean, it was very, <laughs> very, it was very hot over there. I mean, literally and figuratively. Yes. Yes. I think if you look at the map, the violence chart, you know, the graph that they have, my two deployments were the two peaks of when it was the most violent, you know, you're finding severed heads everywhere. And um, I, so I, I remember, you know, taking that military flight over. And when we landed, you know, I, I was the only civilian on that flight. And it, you know, it's pretty intimidating. I'm not in the military, like I've had training and what the military is, but I, I've never lived this. And I remember everyone like shuttling off the plane and then they are yelling at everyone to line up and everyone's lined up in front of this plane. And then they start telling people, here's an amnesty box, like anything you've smuggled in, like put it in. And I'm just like sweating, like, oh my God, <laughs> what do I have? Like, <laughs> and then they're waiting and everyone's quiet and I'm looking around, like trying to find a friendly face, like someone tell me what to do. And then they're like, all right, we're going to go look through everyone's bags. And everyone like got in a line, was marching into that room where they you know, tear your stuff apart. And I was just like, I'm going to get sent home. I don't know what I did, but I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. And, and then I remember someone like calling my name, you know, and I was like, Oh, thank God. It's me. It's me. You know? Um, but I just remember thinking through all that, like, what have I done? Right. <laughs> like, am I going to, am I going to do this? You know, you hear people talk about imposter syndrome. I, I still suffer from it. Um, I knew I was good. I knew I was ready, but I had had you know, so much training where I had um, instructors telling me I wasn't going to succeed because I was a white chick and who in the Middle East was going to talk to a white chick. And so, you know, just every step I took closer and closer to my chew, you know, my room, my office on that base, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So there's some trepidation as uh, you, you got finally approached this and um, what, I mean, when you got there, I mean, uh, I'm sorry if you mentioned it. What base were you on and uh, what was your mission? I mean, what was your understanding of the mission when you showed up? 
Yeah. So I was on Fab Marez uh, and Mosul. Mm-hmm. And um, in, initially that first tour, it was all tactical. We needed to find every, you know, weapons cache, every IED location. We were there to save lives, period. Yeah, I was uh, I was on the airfield uh, with uh, task force in 05. Um, so, yeah, you got there like right like after. Diamondback. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's that, I mean, that was a very hot area <laughs> during, during that was. time frame. Yeah. But I mean, think about it. Like how many people, you know, I know a lot, you know, military people go do patrols. But imagine for for me, you know, ter- terrified, mm-hmm. not blending in to have the ability to go in a thin skinned really shitty vehicle and drive around Mosul at the height of the war and case, you know, and right. see these old neighborhoods and see these old mosques. And I mean, I have so many pictures, but it was just like, I call it combat tourism. You know, it was like, I was like war zone Barbie, like everywhere I went, I was just so excited to be able to, Oh, there's the Mosul museum. And, you know, which is now destroyed, but you know, stuff, stuff like that. It was just, it was so, so cool. You remember the playground over on the east side of the river? It, it looks like something out of a Mad Max movie. The Yeah, it was really long, like long across the... There's, there's, the uh, there's like merry-go-rounds and there's slides and stuff like that, but it's like all just desert and like weeds growing up and stuff. It was a little creepy. The yeah. whole, I mean, the whole street, honestly. Was yeah, creepy. yeah. Creepy. <laughs> So, uh, so tell us about that, about hu- doing human in Mosul. I mean, kind of at the height of the war, uh, what, what was that like? Um, how are you going out there trying to find sources, recruit sources, handle sources? Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yeah, so we were um, limited, of course. Like I couldn't go, you know, hit someone up, cold call. In, in Afghanistan, I could cold call people. I was a little bit different, um, but not really, it wasn't permissive. So um, a lot of the times we relied on subsources, mm-hmm. you know, so if we had a source and they knew someone, um, you know, we were, you know, we recruit people and try to get additional people. Hey, we're looking for X. Mm-hmm. Do you know anybody that would have this? We also, I developed a really good relationship with um Oh, God, I can't remember the name of the team. But there was a counterintelligence officer. His name was Liam. Love him to death. Uh, when people did walk-ins and would come onto base, he was the person to screen them. Mm-hmm. And so when I met him, I was like, I'm going to recruit him because he can give me good leads. Mm-hmm. And so we actually became fast friends. But in, basically anything like that, walk-ins, um, subsources, things like that. Yeah. But, you know, like, again, we're rolling around. I had to, you know, I, I covered, you know, wore a headscarf. I did not drive. We had a driver and an interpreter. I would sit in the back. But um, this this white ass face does not blend in. What what was your first experience that, like, got your heart going when you were there? There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can think of so many. Uh, I would say... Probably the the scariest moment was when and Delta a, a Delta guy two Delta guys actually I think saved my life here. Um, I think this was my second tour actually, so this wasn't the first one, but this is like the major one. Um, there was a fatwa that had come out where Al Qaeda was looking for female intelligence officers, and um, the sofa had ended, and so. I was still still rolling out and I rolled out, it was one car, just me. There, were, there was a driver, um, interpreter in the front and I was in the back. And when we left base, we were doing our surveillance detection route in the neighborhood right outside the base. And I detected surveillance and all of the cars were the same. And there was just, you know, that, that gut, you know, training kicks in of mm-hmm. course, but your gut instinct too, you're like, oh, all right, this is it. Um, and they had kind of set us up into a corner and I radioed back to base and I said, you know, I'm, I'm aborting the mission. We have surveillance. When, when we came back to base, uh, 
I don't know, maybe an hour later, like short, shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. uh, this Delta guy came up on base and he had a report and he's like, they've identified you. So one of their subsources was working for them. And in the report, they had um, described the tattoo on my driver's arm. They described me and they were basically, they were setting up to kidnap. They were like, right, not that instance, but like the next time I rolled out. So I was grounded for a while. Um, wow. So that's when you're like, oh, this is real. Yeah. yeah. Did, did the JSOC guys like try to bait them into an ambush or anything like that? No, not, not that I know of. Um, but it was just kind of like late, just lay low, let yeah. it go away. I remember we, th- they tried to do that in, uh, out at, uh, out at the airfield back in, yeah, like Oh five, something like that. Yeah, uh, I did. Um, there was a Delta, that same Delta guy, um, they were doing an op and I, I got to, I, I was one of those, like, if you're doing something fun, I want to do it with you. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember they had this special van, you know, with cameras and all kinds of stuff. And I got, they let me ride around in the van. So we're riding around Mosul, you know, surveilling, you know, safe houses and caches and stuff. And I was just like, Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> the Scooby van. I remember yeah, the Scooby that. Van. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, and so I'm not going to beat around the bush, uh, you know, following up on your earlier comment, being an attractive woman in a war zone, doing this human mission, pros and cons. The con is that everybody thought I would sleep with them or I was sleeping with someone they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, the pro was that I could commandeer a helicopter, fly to <laughs> Zocco, uh, I mean, how many people can do that? Uh, fly to Zaho or Talifar or wherever and say, hey, this is who I am. This is my mission. I need a mechanic. I need a room for debriefing. I need billeting for my team. And I always got yes, because with DIA, we didn't have that stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a helicopter unit um, on Diamondback that I actually, because we kept getting hemmed up at checkpoints, I drove down to that unit and I'm still, she's one of my best friends to this day, um, the commander. I basically recruited her and I said, uh, we need air support because we've got nothing. We don't have radios. Mm -hmm. We were relying on local cell phones, which as you know, did not work. Mm -hmm. And so when we kept getting hemmed up at checkpoints, we needed something so I could, so this unit gave us radios. They gave us the pucks. Um, We put special stuff on the car. So when we got hemmed up, I could call and be like, hey, see those helicopters? They're with us, like Mm -hmm. leave us alone. Mm Um, so that was the benefit, right. To being a woman, because people said, yes, as a ex-girlfriend of mine used to call that the babe clause, <laughs> you, get, you get away, you get away with shit that other people can't, you can't, I mean, Baghdad five, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> you can get away with a lot more than a Baghdad 10. What, Baghdad two. what, uh, what, uh, does it mean to get hemmed up at a checkpoint? What does that look like for a team like yours? Yeah. So basically being question right first no and i'll say 90 percent of the checkpoints again being a, a woman i we'd roll through and they would look at the driver and the interpreter give them like a glare and then i would lean forward and say salam alaikum and they'd be like oh go ahead um but we got hemmed up a lot like one time the axle fell out of my car um the, the local vehicle like the whole front axle um one time we got, and this is in Afghanistan, actually, we were pulled over. This is a terrible story. This is so bad. Our cover office didn't look at the Bolo list and they used Velcro to Velcro um, license plates onto our vehicles. And they had Velcroed one from a province that was on the Bolo list that day. And when we rolled through a checkpoint, there was a, a guy who was not friendly, pulled us over and started um, beating the car up with the, the butt of his rifle. And he kept telling me, like, kept pointing at me and telling me he was going to kill me. No, and my driver and my interpreter were both escalating and the guy was screaming obscenities at them and they were screaming at him. And I was, for some reason, I stayed calm until the evening after everything happened. But he broke the mirrors. He was trying to crack the windows and our only window that wasn't, and we were like, it was like level two, level three. The only window that wasn't up armored was the very back window. It's the only one he didn't try to hit. Um, but he pulled us over. We were there for like 45 minutes. And then he went, he called a truck, a truck came up and then they came out and they got two RPGs and he picked up the RPG and he, he was very close. I don't know how it would have worked that close, but he walked right up to the car and he's pointing at me and he's telling me, <laughs> you know, blow me up. 
So that that was a solid hem up. And I actually had to call a source in the government that I knew. And I was like, could you could you maybe send someone to get to get us off the X, please? So that that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. I uh, I also wanted to ask you as far as like uh, being a woman handling sources in the Middle East, what what that was like. Um, because I, I interviewed years ago, I'll have to try to get him on the show someday, uh, Remy Adaleke, who's a African-American Navy SEAL. He's literally African-American. He's a Nigerian immigrant, uh, came as a, as a little kid. And uh, I asked, like, being a black guy in Iraq, I mean, what was that like handling sources? And he was like, dude, it was always a positive. He's like, I would start telling jokes. And the people, that, the Arabs I was working with, they had no idea what I was saying. But they had all seen uh, Eddie Murphy and Dave Chappelle and these black comics, and they just knew intrinsically what I was doing was funny, and they were just <laughs> laughing so much. And he's like, it opened up all kinds of doors um, because they had never seen a black American doing that job. Mm -hmm. And so I was just curious, as a, you know, a, a redheaded American woman, <laughs> what, what was it like handling sources for you? It was amazing, actually. Um, I would say it was a huge, huge benefit. Um, and it took me a while to figure that out, honestly. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, and I still don't understand why, but I could straddle both worlds. So for example, um, you know, a, a very devout Muslim asset invited me to his home and I would make dinner with his wife, his mother, his aunts, his daughters, wow. I have pictures sitting on the kitchen floor, picking cherry stems. And then after dinner was ready, I would walk into the room, they would serve dinner to the men, you know, we you know, sit on the floor with all the pillows and play backgammon, drink whiskey. And I would be in their world talking intel and they accepted me. It was like I was in this different category. Right. Uh, maybe a novelty. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I I could talk to women. I had female sources um, all over the world, not just in war zones. Whereas my male counterparts, they could not build that rapport and that trust because, I mean, you can't even be alone with a, a right. woman, you know? Right. So I, I literally could pick a world. I could jump right into it. Right. And I don't know about Iraq, but I know in Afghanistan, like even on doing like, uh, you know, the, the, the village engagement stuff, like having, you know, women out there, if there were civil affairs, you know, like the women would always want to talk to them, but you were, yeah. and they had tons of information. But there was yes. no way to get that information if all you had were a group of men because you would because the women were not going to talk to you. A hundred percent. There was actually an ODA team that called me. And this is in Mosul. Also, they had a female source who, um, you know, wore like full everything. She had long black gloves and she had come in and told them uh, that she was tortured and was telling them a location of some safe house or something. And they kind of didn't believe her. And so they called me in and I went and debriefed her and they could not take her gloves off. They, she had said that they had pulled her fingernails off, mm -hmm. but they couldn't take her gloves off. They couldn't mm -hmm. examine her. And I could. Mm -hmm. So guess what? Nobody had tortured her. Instead, they were manipulating her, trying to get her to give them information for an ambush. Mm -hmm. Right. But having that woman, having me be able to go help, it saved lives potentially. Uh, I want to ask you about the next deployment to Iraq in 2009. Um, I just want to give a quick uh, promotion out there for our own show. I want to remind everyone to like, share, and subscribe to the Team House. There's a link down below to our Patreon if you want to get these episodes ad-free, uh, both audio and video. Um, we really appreciate the support you guys give us. And uh, yeah. I, again, I hope everyone's having a great holiday weekend vacation or holiday. Yeah, get us to uh, 60,000 before the new year. Yeah, It'd be coming, awesome. Coming up, we're we're uh, we're like a, probably a thousand subscribers away from sixty thousand. So help help get us there. We really appreciate it. Nice. Um, so Shawnee, uh, you went back to Iraq a second time, two thousand and nine. Uh, mm -hmm. What was where were you? What was the mission this time around? So I was in Mosul again. I just couldn't turn it down. <laughs> um, and it was a very it was different. I mean, it was obviously still very violent um but but the groups had shifted um i operated in kurdistan a lot both tours so i had really great relationships with peshmerga and asaish and the it was pretty cool because when i had come in in 2009 that the group ahead of me hadn't explored kurdistan and they had kind of lost that contact and um so we moved into a, a lot more strategic, they were still tactical always, but a lot more strategic with elections and things like capabilities and stuff like that. 
Um, a, a funny story. I, again, it's talking about not blending in, right? I remember I had rallied my group and we took several cars up to Kurdistan. I was going to give everyone a tour and uh, like area familiarization. And when we rolled through the very first checkpoint into Kurdistan, not even two minutes later, my interpreter gets a phone call and he just, he opens, like his eyes got really big and he looks at me and he's like, uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And I was like, what, what's wrong? And he goes, they know you're here. They want you to come say hi. <laughs> like, so um, it, good times. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you had mentioned to me that you were down in uh, Telafar also on the on this trip. Yep. That was one of the places. So Zaho Gate up on the Syrian border, Rabia or Rabia on the, on the Syrian border, Zaho Gate and um, Talafar were three of the places that I literally commandeered helicopters and would go try to get support for our for our unit. Yeah, my, my ODA was down there on uh, in Talafar in, in 2009, but it sounds like we, we probably missed each other um, at that. Yeah. Point. Yeah. I don't know. It was it was fun. I mean, Talafar is not like the best base so sorry about that <laughs> by 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 09 it was, it was it was the city had pacified um yeah as opposed to 2005 every time we went in there we were getting shot up but you know it was, a, it was like night and day difference between 05 and 09 it's amazing how it changed yeah um so any like highlights from that from that deployment in 09 that you recall that you want to mention um I just kept pushing to do fun things, right? Like combat tourism is a must. Uh, I got to do a dismounted patrol in Talifar. Um, I got to play with like the robot, you know, the bomb robot thing and put on the scuba suit. Uh, I got to fly a helicopter in war zone. I got, a, you know, so like all, I got to blow up doors with an ODA team, um, shoot a tank. Like that, that was my way of like, you know what? Life is short. I've had a lot of near death experiences. I'm going to make this fun. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do great work. I'm going to get great intel, but I'm also going to have fun. Uh, it, it sounds like you were able, though, to, you know, like you weren't, you weren't like as, as the DIA element, the DH element, you weren't some secret, secret squirrel, you know, element hiding out in a compound of base. Like nobody knows what we do. It sounds like you were building a lot of rapport with the local, with the local U.S. units around you yes. for that support for that. Yeah, but you know, I think that's just me, honestly. Like I'm a relationship builder by nature. I still mm -hmm. do it to this day. Um, you're never gonna accomplish anything great if you don't have help and if you don't help others, period. Like mm -hmm. we can't do this alone. So when I would build these relationships with people, I would always, there's a benefit to them too. Mm -hmm. You know, I would pass them specific intel, like the helicopter unit, what do you need to know? I'll find out for you. Um, plus, I brought them cookies from Kurdistan. You know, um, what can I do to help you? You're helping me. This is a two-way street. Right. And after that, uh, 2011, you're heading to Kabul. Yes. Yep. Um, so I lived, it was technically um, in the red zone, a uh, little safe house there. Uh, very, very strategic. All, again, always some tactical, but I... I really enjoyed that in that I was working with a lot of government officials, um, terrorists, uh, you know, like it kind of runs the gamut of who you're meeting with mm -hmm. each day. I had a lot of success in Kabul. Um, I, one of my favorite stories, and again, there, there's a podcast out, so I'm not going to retell the story, but uh, I recruited one of Osama bin Laden's right-hand men, uh, like nine hour marathon meetings for months and months and months. And um he was a moolah and it was an incredible challenge, but we ended up really respecting each other. I really liked the guy. Um, it's a really incredible story. He knew where bin Laden was and uh, my interpreter didn't understand what he was saying. And just, it's a long, frustrating story, but um, so I this, worked with a lot of women. This, this source knew that OBL was in Abbottabad? Yes. So he, um, towards the end uh, of my tour, he would come in and, and you know, his, his tasking, part of his tasking is, where is he? Yeah. And um, this guy had access, you know, a lot of access. And he kept saying, and I have notes where I put a badabad question mark. And my interpreter was not from where this guy was from. And so the accents were very different. Mm -hmm. So 
when I would go to our NGA folks, you know, geospatial and um, interpreter, and I'm writing up these reports, everybody's like, I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what this is, but he described it. He sent me, he gave me pictures, like everything. Um, he described, okay, on this road, then you take a right at this tree or what, you know, like it was a hundred percent accurate and we could not confirm it. Uh, and then I woke up one morning, uh, three, four weeks after, like we had been talking about this and on CNN, they had caught him in a Badabad and I, I think I shit myself. <laughs> um, I went back, we had a meeting with him and, and I, I'll never be able to tell him this, but he was like, see, I was right. I was uh -huh. right. We got it. I'm yeah. like, yes, it's amazing. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Somewhere out there, there's a guy telling the story of how he got bin Laden. Yeah. Yes. And he did. Just yeah. Nobody knew it. Yeah. <laughs> wow, man. That's wild. Yeah. So close. I will kick myself for the rest of my life. Uh, is that guy still out there somewhere? <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. I mean, he, he ended up like his whole motivations. He had very solid motivations. He completely changed his beliefs. Mm. Um, his family was his priority. So like going into this, meeting him initially, like having that, like trying to get rid of any bias, like what you did and what you knew about is horrific and will mm. probably make me cry if I really think about it. But getting to know him and the whole story and dragging that out over months and months, you realize people can change. Mm -hmm. His father was a huge inspiration in that. And um, I, I, I hope he's doing well and his mm -hmm. 8,000 kids are doing well because uh, great, dedicated father. That's a wild, wild story. <laughs> That's cool, though. And, and then in uh, 2013, you went back as a detachment chief. Yes, I was a detachment chief for um, kind of a hybrid uh, unit uh, where we had a lot of sources and subsources. And um, that was a huge challenge in that we ran out of funding like in spring for the calendar year. And so I had to keep several hundred sources and subsources happy and giving us intel with no money. And DIA would not give us more. That's so when wild. I came in, we were already in the red. So it was like nothing that, that I had done. I tried requesting more. I did everything I could. And they were like, nope, 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 nope. So in that, again, remember I said, like, you have to think outside the box. In that situation, uh, I went and recruited the medical staff on base who are amazing human beings and patriots. And um, basically we arranged to provide medical care for all the sources, subsources, families, grandmas, kids. And so instead of payment, we would treat them and give them medication. And what happened was they told me that this was actually worth more than money to them. And it ended up just being an incredible success. And we got a ton of great intel as a result. And I can say I've given like EKGs to like old ladies and stuff now, because remember the men couldn't do it. So I had to, I had was, to do all the medical stuff. Was this because like the NDAA had not passed that year or something? Like why was the, the funding frozen? Um, I, we were kind of being punished. My predecessor had had spent it in not a smart way. And even though that person had left, uh, DIA was still kind of like, hmm, you're on your own. Wow. Yeah. I, Politics. I, I, right? Yeah, I, I don't understand how like DEA or I'm sorry, DIA just like denies funding to its own source networks as like, like who are you punishing here exactly? Like, right. How does, how does that work? Right. <laughs> hundred percent, especially yeah. when you know that the, why that source network was so important is it wasn't just reporting on stuff for us. It was protecting lives for ISAF. Um, I, I don't, that it's, it's, yeah, it's an argument I'll, I'll always have that DIA did the wrong thing. Right. But hopefully I was able to kind of make it right. Right. It's almost like telling like punishing a surgeon and saying you can't operate on people that's your punishment and it's the patients who are actually suffering right that yeah. that you guys weren't really the ones suffering from that lack of funding it was the people you were protecting the war yes. fighters well, and... well yeah it's destructive it's yeah. destructive to the agency itself yeah uh, well reputationally i right. mean if you were an asset right and you're putting your life and your family's life on the line right 
to come meet with me or one of my teammates. Right. And then we're like, hey, we don't have any money. I'm sorry. Yeah. But can you keep giving us intel? Yeah. What would you say? Right. You know? Um, what was it like for you transitioning from, you know, driving around in thin skinned vehicles, uh, you know, near death experiences to now going into this sort of like managerial role and having to presumably manage a bunch of, uh, uh, DIA officers and their, their source networks, um, you know, maybe their melodramas, you know, what, what was that, what was that like now, uh, being in that position? Um, it was a bit of a, a culture shift for sure. While I'm super good at relationship building, I wasn't prepared for the egos, um, I think, involved. Um, I think in Intel, I'm not going to speak for other agencies, but at DIA and Intel, um, there's a lot of ego. Everyone thinks they're special. I think I'm special. Like, we all drink the Kool-Aid to a degree. You have to. You're Mm -hmm. putting your life on the line. Um, But I had, not just in that deployment, but a follow-on assignment, um, I had a lot of pushback where I had people that I managed that were older than me, or there was a colonel even, who just were not happy uh, that I was the manager. Uh, I got told that by the colonel, I got told I should be barefoot and pregnant at home. Um, so that kind of stuff was a real pain in the ass. And no, no, one, no one is more professional than I, right. as the uh, army uh, <laughs> creed goes. Yeah, so... I much preferred working on the street than, I mean, shoot at me any day, but put me in, you know, make me manage someone who's, you know, an egotistical dick, not going to be happy. Yeah. You'd mentioned before the show that you had experienced like a fair amount of sexual harassment, unfortunately. I, I mean, did that, that, was that coming more from like the green suitor side from the actual uh, military personnel or the civilian side? No, it was both. Um yeah. I mean, the most egregious was civilian side, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some military, there were some issues on the military side as well. Um, I think, especially in war zones, people get in this really odd mentality. I mean, we all think we're going to die, right? Mm-hmm. There's rockets and mortars. Like you've experienced it. They're landing around you. You're like, eh, maybe today, maybe not. I don't know. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. But there's always something in the back of your mind. Like every time you go outside the wire, like could it be this time? Right. Like, do I have my stuff tight? Um, and so I think that causes people to act differently. You act like you're going to die tomorrow, which means you're going to take more risks. You know, you're going to make different choices than you would back home. And so people definitely acted that way. Mm. Um, but it wasn't just sexual harassment in, you know, like, Hey, I want to get with you. Also like, you know, I, one of the rules was if you had a source or an asset and they gave you like a weapons cash location, for example, you would accompany that person to go identify it because that's your source, Mm -hmm. source protection, right? I want to make sure they're safe. And I finally got my opportunity and my, my manager who's a male was like, no, no, you can't go. This guy can go for you. And so we got in a very heated argument where I was like, why? And he straight up said, because I don't know what I would do if something happened to you. And I said, but what if something happened to him? And he's like, it's different. You're a woman. I mean, just straight up said it. Right. So there was a lot of that where I was constantly trying to prove I can do it. I can do anything. Mm-hmm. Just give me the opportunity. And I got a lot of no's. Did you, you know, you mentioned that you were a relationship builder and, you know, you you went around to these units to, to build these relationships which were beneficial to both, you know, your element and that element. Did you ever find that, you had it you changed your approach and how you built those relationships because people like men misinterpreted yes. that that process yes 100 percent um i i tend to think well, I, I think i'm a pretty friendly open person i i am nice like um but i found that when i was myself people interpreted that friendliness as flirting or you must be hitting on me. Mm -hmm. And if you're not hitting on me, you're clearly a bitch. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a bitch, you must be a lesbian because you're not into me. There were kind of like three categories. (laughs) Right. right? You're kind of a slut, a bitch, or a lesbian. Like pick one. Um, So I I would have to go in, you know, not being myself where I was more stoic and professional. You know, like I remember there was, I was giving an op board 
actually the, one of the Delta guys was there and we were talking about this joint mission and I was briefing my mission and everybody it was all guys at the table, a bunch of us. And I remember talking and we went through it and I know I was like, I did a really good job. And the, the one Delta guy at the end of the table is just really quiet and just had a weird look on his face. And I remember saying, do you, do you have a question? Like, is there something you want to talk about? And he's like, uh, I don't know what to say. Cause I've never worked with a woman before. So like, just say it. That's all you have to do. Just say it. So there, it was, there was a lot of learning about communication relationships. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, unfortunate sometimes like how infantile the community can be when it comes to some of these things. Like, yeah. Do you ever have like a mom or a sister? Was there ever a woman somewhere in the, in, in the works? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you also worked um, some strategic assignments in Latin America. Uh, you mentioned Gambia. I mean, can you tell us about some of those types of jobs, some of those types of missions? Yeah. So I, um, I had, um, I served a tour in Texas and a tour in Germany as well as DC. And so in those different assignments, uh, like Germany, I focused on Africa in Texas, I focused on Latin America. So I was able to do a lot of really cool strategic um, assignments. I mean, shoot, I got to go to the Seychelles and case for like nine days and play tourist. Like, thank you, U.S. taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it was amazing. But I was meeting with an incredible source from Asia with just really cool information. So it was really interesting, you know, transitioning from this combat mindset where you're working 22 hours a day and you think you're going to get blown up. Um, to just this totally different world where you're, you know, you've got a cover to live and whatever that is. And, you know, I was a photographer or whatever. Um, but, but like the Gambia, you'd mentioned, I had a source that I, that was in the Gambia that I had to go meet. And again, don't blend in at all. <laughs> and uh, I didn't find out until I was there, Station had sent a cable saying that um, there was something, if anyone's ever been there, there's something called bumsters. And in the Gambia, there, there are these young local men who like hang out on the beach and they're like prostitutes and white Western women from Europe will come down and get a boyfriend or whatever. So people kept asking me like, what are you, what are you doing here? What, you know, so why are you in the Gambia? And I was like, you know, whatever my cover was. And um, then I realized, oh shit, <laughs> I think I'm here for like sex tourism. Like that's not a good cover. Uh, the Gambia was wild. I mean, there's Hezbollah entities. I was trying to do a surveillance detection route with zero control, you know, taking taxis in these like dirt streets. And I had a taxi driver come. I told him where I was going. I had like pre-planned everything perfectly. And then he pulls over in the middle of the route and picks up this other dude. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get raped. So they're driving and he drives me to this like a lake, like this abandoned dirt road. He pulls over in this lake and I'm thinking like, okay, do I run? Like how, how am I going to get out of this? They get out of the car and just start smoking joints. They're like, you want any? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm trying to cut back. Thanks. <laughs> in the meantime, I'm like, how do I write this up in my report? Right. You know, like, son of a bitch, that report just got really long. So like, you just have no control in some of these places. Yeah. That's fascinating. And for people who know, like a surveillance detection route, like it's like there are, there are, it's clocked, it's time. Like you, you yes. know where you're supposed to be at each moment. Um, yes. You have very small windows. Yeah. 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 That's a little stressful. A little stressful. <laughs> yeah. I imagine. I imagine. So what made you decide to eventually leave DIA? Uh, what, what, what was it? So that was a really, really tough decision. That's probably one of the toughest choices I've ever had to make. Um, I, I was dealing with a lot of health issues. I mean, like I said, home one day a month, you can't go to the doctor, you can't schedule an appointment, you can't get follow-up. Uh, I was being bullied, honestly, um, by a manager, a female. I was exhausted. Um, I wasn't appreciated. You know, just general disgruntled employee syndrome, right? Yes, employee right um and i wanted to have kids um i decided to do ivf uh and so i left so that i could start a family and i started my own little i've got three uh three kids who are amazing 
And I, I was very fortunate also in that when I was in Afghanistan on that last tour, like the world works in mysterious ways, right? I had been reached out to by someone uh, I, I went to school with who was former agency and he recruited me to join at Merck. And it just like timing, like everything in my life has really just fallen into place. And a side story, like on Intel related, this is like, you know, the world that how it works in mysterious ways. I did not know this at the time, but when I got hired with Merck, one of their benefits was like paying for IVF and all the drugs they make are free. Well, guess what? Wow. That was all, yeah. was all free. Cause that's a very so, expensive process, right? Yeah. 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 Miserable too. Yeah. But I mean, like how weird is that, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we talked about sort of like the, uh, sort of the sexual harassment and things like that with the men. We've also talked on this show before about how women can be harder gatekeepers in those communities towards other women. Yes. Did you experience that? Because uh, yes. you mentioned being <laughs> bullied by your manager who is a woman. Yes. I think with women, because they are forced to just really fight it out to like prove their worth. Plus, like I said earlier, you know, I, I'm only half joking. Like you're a bitch, a slut or a lesbian, mm -hmm. right? Pick pick a category because you don't fit in any other category, uh, really. Mm -hmm. um, these women have fought so hard to prove themselves that when they see someone that they think is competition, it's like an instant, I'm going to take you down. The worst managers I've ever had have been females. And I hate to say that. I mm -hmm. hate, hate, hate to say that but it was all competition. One of them, when I was in Mosul and, you know, I told you I'm flying around trying to get us resources because we had nothing. Mm. Uh, my, one of my managers was a female and I actually had a meeting with her where she told me, you have to stop being the face of this unit. I should be the face. And I'm like, I don't want to be the face. I just want resources. Mm -hmm. Do your job and we'll be okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, again, it ends up being very destructive uh, to the organizations as a whole, you know, whether whether it's coming mission. from men or mm -hmm. women. Yeah. 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 And the mission, like just let people do their jobs. So moving from the Intel world, you're a case officer. What what job is there for you at Merck? What jobs are there for Intel officers, you know, for case officers in the outside world? So I think there's a lot of jobs people might not even think about. A lot of people think about physical security, which is one path. But what I did was I leveraged my experience in recruiting vulnerable insiders to standing up insider threat programs. I really just dug into insider threat and insider risk. Um, knowing the psychology behind why people commit espionage or why people do malicious acts, you know, sabotage, revenge, fraud, all these things. I had been an investigator prior to joining DIA. I did background investigations for police and fire in California for a while. So I, and I had corporate investigations, of course, too. So being an investigator, sitting across the table from people who have, you know, stolen intellectual property, being the case officer where I'm manipulating people into stealing intellectual property, and then standing up programs. So I, I helped stand up Merck's Insider Threat Program. They call it Intellectual Property and Trade Secret Protection Program. Say that five times fast. Um, and then I, later I did it for Uber and, and other things, but um, taking that trifecta of knowledge, if you will, and helping the private sector understand, I mean, I understand national security risks and the threats. So being able to help these companies understand this is how your humans are putting you at risk and what you can do to mitigate those risks has been just really incredible. And I think a lot of intelligence officers are not thinking about those skills we're used to having a mission and we're used to contributing to us national security it's just twisting it on its head where we're helping educate our companies here at home and how they can do it better because all these companies are getting their lunch eaten you know by china and russia right. and everybody what can you tell us a little bit about for people who haven't heard about insider threat you know it sounds almost like a made-up thing because you're like oh it's merc what secrets do they have or what can somebody inside the company do and why would they do it? Can you kind of give us the breakdown on that? Yeah, so every company has sensitive information, right? It's what makes your company unique. The best way to think about it is if your information, whatever that is, got in the hands of a competitor, would that cause harm to your company? Would that help the competitor? That's like the easiest way to look at it. But when you think about insider threat, what I like about it is it's this huge umbrella 
right? You've got everything and, and it's unintentional. The vast majority is unintentional. People are stupid. We, we're ignorant. We take shortcuts. Maybe I leave something in the seat back pocket on an airplane. Oops, right? That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. That's the vast majority of insider threat. But there's, you know, I told you I was disgruntled. There's disgruntled employees. There's people who don't feel valued. They want revenge. They drop a logic bomb. They want to sabotage something. They shoot up power stations. There are a lot of things, espionage, fraud, sabotage, theft of intellectual property, workplace violence, active shooter, all of those things are encompassed in insider threat. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is, if you have humans working for you, which we all do, we have insider risk. That's before the fact, that's left of boom. Insider threat is after it's happened. Is there- I have a cyanide poised above Dave's coffee. ready to go in outside of like nation state like you know china getting you know all all the secrets you know uh you know to basically for copyright violation or or patent violation or whatever uh, not copyright but yeah but would i would i don't want to say like pfizer and merck because i don't want to mention any companies but are there active like intelligence operations from within some companies targeting other companies trying to recruit their employees yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, in fact, I've worked cases where there were was Chinese PLA involved in placing someone in that company uh, to steal trade secrets. There, there are a lot, I mean, multiple cases. But it's not, it's not just nation states, you know, competitors do it too. Um, pick, pick a sector. Mm-hmm. You know, there's business intelligence for a reason. You want to stay ahead of the curve. But with COVID, what's been interesting, when COVID started, not a lot of people talked about insider threat, but then everyone moved at home and companies realized they can't control what they used to be able to control. People are working behind unmanaged home routers. They're not mm-hmm. using VPNs. You don't know who's accessing you know, the screen or, or the office. And so fraud and theft of intellectual property skyrocketed mm-hmm. because a lot of people started getting fired or leaving their job. And they were pocketing stuff to either start their own business, sell it to a competitor, or take it to a new job so they sounded smart. I actually had a woman once tell me she took, I mean, terabytes worth of stuff, so she sounded really smart at her new job. People are hedging their bets because they have to provide for their families. And COVID has really just pushed people in this weird new zone where it's kind of a free-for-all. That's interesting. And it's interesting to think of this corporate intelligence war right that that not you know that that pepsi has an and and probably pepsi and coke don't give a rat's ass about each other you know what i mean but (laughs) but that pepsi has an intelligence unit going after coke's secret recipe and coke has an intelligence you know that there's this this other war that goes on um outside of like the nation state technology or you know uh, intelligence war yeah yeah i mean i I've seen it a lot. There's some good stories. Um, but then add in a layer of social engineering. Right. And phishing right. and ransomware. Right. And all of the cyber threats. And I like to tell people it's not the computer that's clicking on that link. Right. It's someone's finger. Right. So if you don't have uh, an insider threat program or you're not training your people in how they're making your company vulnerable, how do they know what they're doing is wrong or just kind of a bad call? How do they know what nation states are targeting that company's intellectual property? Because I can tell you 99.9% of people are like, well, I don't have access to secrets. I don't know anything special. Right. right. Those are the people I used to recruit because they right. didn't think they had anything special. Shawnee, do you have anything uh, you want to promote? Any companies that you're working for, endeavors that you want to uh, that you want to plug? Sure. Um, yeah. So I started my own company several years ago called Viance Group. Uh, Viance means courage or bravery in French. So you have to say it really snooty. Um, but I do insider threat consulting. I do training awareness. I'm a keynote speaker for several different agencies. We do uh, human risk assessments. Um, like I said, just with espionage too, like I eat, sleep and breathe it. I love it. I think it's fascinating. It affects every company every industry every country you know you can't you can't escape it um and then i'm working on some really cool hollywood projects i i can't wait to drop um i've got a, a podcast there's a tv show and a film all in the works wow very cool yeah not, not about me <laughs> but but about espionage and 
about insider threat, espionage. Um, I've got uh, something about the race for autonomous vehicles, and it's got layers of espionage and insider threat in it. Um, and I've got cool. some really great partners. Yeah, it's very exciting. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, when you get any of those projects up to the finish line, we'd love to have you back to talk about some of that stuff. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. Um, any, anything else that I failed to cover that you, you really want to uh, discuss? No, I, I just want to say thank you for your service. Um, thank you to any of the listeners uh, for their service as well. I really, I didn't have the balls to do it and sign up myself. So I, I deeply appreciate it. Well, no, I mean, I, I think you still put your uh, put your life at risk uh, running around Missoula at the height of the war. So <laughs> yeah, um, I really appreciate you, you know, joining us uh, for this episode and sharing some of your experiences and, and Jim for introducing us is awesome. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope everyone else, I, again, this is supposed to be our Christmas episode, so I hope everyone's having a great holiday. And uh, our next episode is going to be our year in review, our New Year's episode, year in review. Can't wait for that. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, gonna, we're, we're finishing 2022 strong, and 2023 is going to be awesome. We're scheduled right through March yeah. a, as of now. So we got plenty going on. Um, so again, Shawnee, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for being with the team house uh, over the last year, uh, three years really at this point. And uh, we'll see you guys real soon. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.